Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Madison Pierce hosts and interviews me about my new book with IVP Academic called The Trinity in the Book of Revelation. After a little bit of teeth pulling, when she asked me last year to do this, I thought it might be a good idea, might be interesting for you. And I know that all of you enjoy listening to Madison more than me when she's on the show anyway. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversation, not just about the book, but even thinking more broadly about the book of Revelation and the doctrine of the Trinity. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. We're also brought to you by Cedarville University's Graduate School. Our graduate school has online options, including business, innovation, leadership, ministry, nursing, worship, and also a ton of residential options like healthcare programs and athletic training, PA studies and pharmacy, and of course, the place where I spend most of my time teaching in our Master of Divinity program and our BA MDiv accelerated program where you can receive a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity in five years in a rigorous residential program. So check us out at cedarville.edu slash graduate. And now my conversation with Madison Pierce, but first, no big deal. is Brandon D. Smith. He's Assistant Professor of Theology and New Testament at Cedarville University, and he completed his PhD at Ridley College under the supervision of Mike Bird on the Trinity and Revelation, and that's what we're here to talk about today um, because this book has recently been published with IVP. So, Brandon, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, thanks. You said on Twitter that this was your podcast, so I'm, I'm happy to be on your podcast. I'm really glad to have you here on Church Which Grammar. is true. It is your podcast. Anytime that you're on, I get pushed to the background pretty quickly. So. <laughs> I love it. But today, the focus is on you, and I take it that you're a little uncomfortable with that, but tough luck, man. So <laughs> I've only been fighting you on this for six months. So That's right. Yeah, so I was going to do a lightning round where it was going to be all the ideas that I had and <laughs> the things that you wouldn't take my advice on until other people recommended it. So it's going to be like, all right, Brandon, lightning round. Who recommended that you do this podcast today? <laughs> it is you, Madison. It yeah. You. All right. No, but seriously. Um, so, Brandon, I mean, this is a fantastic book. Um, I think it's representative of work in biblical studies or at this nexus of biblical studies and theology that does explore the ways that uh, various doctrines can, or ways that they played out in the New Testament. And um, I'm really excited. I think that bringing this into Revelation is such a great idea, and it works really well. So first, you know, where did this come from? How did you end up writing this, especially, you know, with Mike at Ridley? Yeah. I mean, it kind of started at the end of my undergrad. Um, I started reading the Church Fathers in a historical theology class, and um, I'd sort of been told that I wasn't supposed to do theology and exegesis. Those things were not supposed to go together. That was sort of how I was initially trained. And then I kept seeing the Church Fathers doing something like that. And I liked it, but I kept feeling like I wasn't supposed to like it. Uh, and then I got to my grad program and I did a master's at Criswell College. And, and we really, I mean, most of our classes were primary reading seminar style, at least a lot of them were. So I was already kind of sympathetic toward the church fathers. I wanted to do exegesis. I didn't want to just do kind of history. So I was kind of just living in this world of, I like church history. I like systematic theology and I like the Bible. And is there a way I can make this, you know, kind of work together? So 
I ended up taking a patristic theology class while I was at Criswell. And that sort of was the, that sort of brought everything together for me. And so there's more to it than that, but basically, yeah, I got to the point where I said, I want to do theological exegesis with the church fathers. What does that look like? And I've said this, I think many times on the podcast already, but, um, Wesley Hills, Paul, the Trinity came out right as I was finishing my grad work. It was, that was it for me. Uh, he was using classical categories. He was doing really serious exegesis. I decided I wanted to do that. And then the question was, you know, I was going to do something at Aberdeen and a totally different field, had to totally switch gears there. And uh, in the Lord's providence, I was emailing Michael Bird about something totally different. I think I was, I think I was trying to talk him into doing like a counterpoints book in Zondervan with me or something like that. I think that that was where it was. But uh, anyway, he asked, you know, how are things going? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm thinking about switching PhD programs. And long story short, by the end of it, he said, why don't you come study with me? And then, uh, and then it turned into Trinity and Revelation. And he said, that'll be super easy. Revelation's an easy book to understand. So you'll, you'll be fine, <laughs> which obviously was the first, the first time I knew he was going to troll me for the rest of my academic career. So that's, awesome. so that's how we got there. Yeah. Uh, Trinity is thankfully really simplistic and easy to understand. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, those two things together were going to be a, a oh, totally. pretty easy, totally. yeah, which is what I was going yeah. for. So Yeah. I can't believe they even just gave you a PhD for something like that. <laughs> Good. So uh, Wes's work, Paul and the Trinity, is one of the things that we kind of share in common. And uh, I mean, yeah, your listeners have heard us talk about it many times. Um, it is one of those kind of classic works that really um, both of us kind of went in our own directions from. So it's great. Mm -hmm. yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you would find to be distinctive, because it is the case that there's a lot that you share with Wes's methodology and others. Um, but I think that there are aspects of what you're doing that really are rather interesting and new. Um, so can you tell us about what the project looks like? And and really, I mean, yeah, what is your, your method? How are you reading Revelation? So Wes and I are doing something very similar in the sense that he particularly draws on Redoublement as a sort of classical way of, of speaking about the Trinity and particularly um, in understanding the Trinity in Scripture. So this idea that we speak about God twice over, we speak about sort of what's common to the divine nature, what is, what is um, the unity between the persons, and then we come back around and speak about them distinctly. So, for example, uh, the Father and Son both offer salvation. They both have this sort of divine prerogative or divine power to offer salvation. But uh, the Son is the one who puts on flesh. The Son is the one who dies for our sins. So he has his own sort of you know distinct mode of operation or whatever there, uh, while also saying that he is God. So that that was the first thing I said. Okay, this is good. This is helpful. Um, and he's also interacting with the best of the sort of early high Christology conversation of the late 20th century in particular, uh, Bauckham, Hurtado, uh, some of these guys, uh, but also saying like, we need to do more than that. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of a part that we share as well. And we can talk about that more if you want to later. But um, so what I, what I wanted to do though, was do a more thoroughgoing version of that by sort of particularly drawing on um, more classical categories. So drawing on homoousios, drawing on inseparable operations, that's probably ended up being inseparable operations ended up being a big part of it and sort of mm -hmm. saying, you know, how can we utilize these categories to help us understand what is native to the text of revelation? So you know, I think my thesis statement, I wrote it so many times, I think it's um, <laughs> a Trinitarian reading uh, is not an imposition on the text, but just drawn from a close reading of the text. I think that's what the thesis statement ends up being. So basically saying that I'm not, yes, the church fathers were writing for, you know, the, the pro Nicenes were writing 400 years after John, Yes, they're using different categories. Yes, they're doing different language. They're in a different context. They're arguing against different opponents. But as David Yeago says, there can be a conceptual, um, 
the, the, the concepts and the judgments can be related in the sense that you might say homoousios. Well, yeah, John doesn't do that. But is John teaching that the father and son share a divine nature or that they are, they're one in nature. Mm-hmm. And then so trying to sort of demonstrate basically that what John is saying, these categories help uh, elucidate what he's saying, or at least describe what he's saying. And so I really just go through saying, um, can we read this in such a way to say what the pro-Nicenes were saying is essentially what John was saying, even though we're using different categories and terms. That's good. And I mean, just to illustrate this a little bit, I mean, you could pick either of those, maybe the homoousios language, you know, what are some of the hints or kind of what are some ways that you might illustrate that principle in Revelation itself? Yeah. I, yeah, homoousios says that the Father, Son, and Spirit share the same nature. Uh, One of the big debates in Revelation, Revelation studies, is uh, the extent to which we can say Jesus is divine. And then if we say Jesus is divine, well, what do we mean by divine, right? So you've got sort of, okay, fine, he's divine, but he's on some sort of hierarchy or levels of divinity. Uh, maybe he's an exalted angel. Maybe he's a mediator between kind of angels and God. There's all these different ways that scholarship has sort of tried to work this out. You've also got a whole sort of Second Temple Judaism and Jewish apocalypses that have these figures who seem to be above angels, but below God, or maybe you're able to do things God does only by virtue of him allowing them to do it or giving them the power of prerogative. What homoousios says is, no, if, if Jesus is doing thing that, things that God does, it's because he actually is God. He's ontologically um, the same or equal to the Father. Mm-hmm. And so you get down, you know, obviously the book is going to get, you know, suss all this out, but you have to go down that road of saying, okay, um, let's think about Revelation. Yes, the Father, Son, and Spirit have distinct uh, modes of operation or distinct missions, uh, the Son and Spirit in particular. So the Father doesn't become the slain lamb, that's the Son. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't put on flesh, that's the Son. So you've got these distinctions. But um, the Son is able to offer salvation, which is something that only the Lord does, biblically speaking. Uh, not only that, but he shares titles, right? So the so God and the Lamb are both called the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them have this language of I am from Exodus 3.14 applied to them. Um, those sort of, sort of crescendo of that is that they both sit on the divine throne and receive worship, which is a huge sort of part of if they're God, they're worthy of worship. If they're not God, they're not worthy of worship. So homoousios is a category that says, okay, whatever we say about God, these things are proper to God and not proper to anybody else, not, not angels, not humans, no other creatures. And so that's one thing we're saying, okay, uh, we, we have to work through the debates about what is ontology and, uh, what does it mean to share a nature and all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally, uh, Jesus is doing and saying all the things God does and says, is sharing titles with God, sharing a throne with God, uh, sharing the giving of life, like all these things the Bible says God does, Jesus is doing those things too. So mm-hmm. essentially, homoousios helps us say, well, there's a, there's a shared nature here, even though there's a, there's a distinction of persons, which I just want to yeah. argue, that's not the only way to read the Bible, but it's a more satisfying way of making sense of the data and revelation than saying Jesus is an angel or a lesser God or something like that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, what you're doing there is drawing on some like Bacham and Hurtado and others, um, but you're using different language to describe the phenomenon. And the other thing I'd want to mention is that um, it's not just that, you know, certain titles or, or descriptions are applied to both father and son. I think this is implicit in what you're saying, but that these titles are things that people would conclude are, are things that are said of God because he's God. You know, right. Alpha and Omega is indicative of him being, 
eternal. And yep. so to apply that also to Jesus, it's not like um, the father is Jared. Uh, we call him Jared. <laughs> and so we're going to call the son Jared, it, you know, just yeah. something completely random. Um, but it's actually these things that are really significant. I mean, the um, application of the divine name, um, the revelation of the son as, you know, one like in Exodus three. I mean, these are really yeah. significant things. I think another interesting piece of your proposal, I mean, it's already come out in some of this discussion is, um, as most will know, you know, you work quite a bit in theology. You're quite interested in early Christian literature or patristics. Um, but of course this project completed with Mike Bird is a PhD in New Testament. Um, and so it does have this kind of rich focus. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it felt like for you to kind of have your foot in both camps. Mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe also, you know, could you reflect a little bit on the way that your work interacts with, uh, contemporary revelation scholarship? Uh, well, it's funny. I technically, I have a PhD in theology. That's what my, what oh. my, 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 uh, yeah, my diploma says that's that. That's so another that's why bit of my homework that I failed in. No, that's all right. Well, that, that's the that's the fun part though is that most people assume it's a New Testament because I was with Bird, which is fair enough. Um, and part of the reason why I studied with Bird is because he is just so well read in all the field, all these different fields I had to interact with. So we would joke sometimes that I was like a triple major in systematic theology, New Testament, and whatever else I was working on, whether it was patristics oh, or yeah. Second Temple Judaism or whatever, you know. Um, and so part of part of why I studied with Bird was because I wanted to live at that intersection. Um, I. Mm. I don't like the bifurcation between theology and exegesis. I don't like, you know, the church fathers, you know, some of them didn't know Hebrew, therefore they're not good exegetes or the fathers aren't really doing exegesis. They're just doing philosophy or apologetics. So part of me was kind of like, I want to live in that world. And I ultimately wanted to uh, do something on the doctrine of the Trinity that would help people understand how to read the Bible better, how to see the Trinity in scripture. And so you kind of have to live in all those worlds, especially academically, if that's what you want to do, you know? And so mm -hmm. um, that was sort of what drew me to it was just that intersection of those things that I was really interested in. And in fact, I think if you read the church fathers, you see that they don't even acknowledge that there's a bifurcation of disciplines. You know, they're, they're, they just are doing theology and exegesis. Um, they are drawing their conclusions from the text. They are trying to read the Bible as a whole and read it as a divinely inspired book and things like that. So that was kind of what what led me there. Um, second part of the question was was revelation scholarship, right? Yeah. Who, who, yeah. So I think Beale and Bauckham were probably the two most influential on what I did. Uh, Bauckham, particularly, we already mentioned the early high Christology stuff. You know, where where I where I just sort of move beyond, I guess, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but sort of where I take a next step from Bauckham is to say Bauckham has Bauckham has given us and Hurtado and others have given us this treasure trove of good arguments for what the early Christians believed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, over and against Wilhelm Bousset or, uh, or, uh, Harnack who say, well, all of this God stuff is just hell is stolen from Hellenism or it's just platonic philosophy. It's not, it's not rooted in Jewish theology. It's not rooted in, uh, what Jesus actually thought or said. It's, it's something that was developed later. And I think what, what Bauckham and these others have done so well is say, no, this actually is completely fitting with Jewish monotheism. This is completely fitting with, with how they would um, actually identify Jesus as God because they already have the categories for what God is or who God is. And Jesus is doing stuff God does. So I think that part of it, I mean, that's really helpful. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the step beyond Bauckham is just making a more sustained Trinitarian argument yeah, and being much more open to the church fathers than him. So he is very critical of the father's use of Platonism and other things like that. Um, some fair, some not fair. 
Uh, and then Beal, I think with Beal, um, the thing he just contributes so much is Beal just has this exhaustive, uh, the revelation, revelation is drawing on the Old Testament. And uh, you can't go a verse with, I mean, I think he says something like you can't go a verse in Old Testament with, or in Revelation without an allusion to the Old Testament. Yeah. And so, and I think that's true. And so mm-hmm. for Beal, he gave me a lot of really good categories to say, okay, um, what were the prophets saying? And how is John sort of seeing himself as, in some sense, a prophet? Or someone who is who is reporting the culmination of what the prof- prophets have said, and so those two kind of gave me some theological and biblical categories to kind of work off of. Um, and then you know, there's little. I mean, David Owney, I don't think he would agree with ninety percent of of my thesis, or maybe more than that. But he has so much good stuff in there about you know how John is doing something that is distinctly Christian as opposed to other mm-hmm. apocalypses. So he would say like. He would be more strong than I would on the fact that maybe John was borrowing from Enoch or whatever. I would say I don't. We don't know that for sure, and maybe they're all just drawing on Daniel because Daniel's so important in Jewish apocalyptic literature in general. But I think where he was really helpful to me was saying like, yeah, but there is this kind of milieu of apocalypses and, and people reflecting on Daniel and thinking about this Messiah or thinking about uh, the sort of um, deliverance of God's people, this promise that they've been waiting on. But John's doing something different. So you might not yeah. like what I say John is doing differently, but it's really helpful to say John is doing something different, which I think is sometimes missed in Revelation scholarship. Yeah, I think that's something that you and I went back and forth on, you know, because you um, very graciously let me read an early draft of it and everything. And then I very graciously gave you some feedback, uh, whether, you <laughs> not, whether or not you liked it. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit. You know, it's one thing to say that Re- we can't say whether Revelation, sorry, John is interacting with like the Enochic literature, but the Enochic literature very likely from my perspective, you know, represents these broader traditions and everything that are available. And I I think you're open to that as well, but we just might say it a little bit differently. I think think John's- A different emphasis on a different syllable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think John is less creative than you do though, I think. So you're welcome to, you're, you're, you're welcome to be wrong. We can still be friends. (laughs) As always. (laughs) Uh, On that note, I think, so we posted it um, that we, or I posted that I was open to getting questions to grill you with. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. most of them were really nice questions, which was not (laughs) what I was hoping. Um, Well, last last time you and I did like an open Q&A, we got like a ton of troll questions, but this time we didn't get as many. Yeah, Yeah. it was actually pretty kind. Um, Maybe if I had told them it was for Church Grammar, they would have known the what the mode was, you know, they're like, Oh, if it's Madison's podcast, we need to be pretty serious, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, Rich Barcellus, I mean, you're talking about, uh, use of scripture and stuff with the Trinitarian flavor of revelation. So what are some of the ways that, um, John draws on some of those traditions? I mean, I think you've hinted at this a little bit, but can you flesh it out? You know, what does that relationship with scripture do for John as he's doing this Trinitarian or he's presenting a Trinitarian God? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the scripture index in the book, you find a ton of Isaiah, ton of Ezekiel, mm-hmm. ton of Daniel, pretty good amount of Zechariah, and then some little, you know, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Joel. I mean, this is all kinds of stuff mixed in. And I think, I think primarily what's going on there, and Bill, I think is really helpful for this, is to say that John is ultimately viewing this revelation, this unveiling that that he is seeing and reporting. You know, the question is, you know, how much is he remembering and describing how much is he you know sort of writing what's dictated i mean that's a whole other question i think but ultimately what you get in the final form is 
he is describing most everything he's seeing through the lens of what the prophets have said and seen before. Now, I would say, uh, if God has revealed himself to both Isaiah and John, then we should expect a resemblance between what he's seeing. What happens for John is, uh, this is where I think, you know, the, the, there's a lot of creativity in the sense that this is a distinctly Christian revelation of the throne room. And so like Isaiah, you know, he sees the throne room, he describes it in very similar ways, or uh, Daniel gets this vision of the heavenly son of man and the ancient of days. And you see this kind of language and it's somewhat restrained. Whereas with John, it's like kind of a blue ocean. You know, he just kind of opens up the floodgates. And now it's not just that there's this one seat on the throne, but now the lamb, the slaughtered lamb is on the throne, right? And uh, he uses stuff from Zechariah to talk about the seven spirits who come from the throne. Um, this kind of language is uh, him sort of taking the prophetic tradition and then building upon it in a very particularly Christian way, particularly mm -hmm. centered on the Lamb, which is completely unique as far as I have been able to see, completely unique in any um, apocalypses, at least uh, apocalypses that he's probably interacting with. I mean, I think Shepherd of Hermas is probably later. So mm -hmm. um, it's a, that's it's very distinct in that sense, but of course it is. He's He's, you know, getting this revelation of Christ. And so this is something Isaiah didn't have and others didn't have fully. So I think that's where he is, uh, in some sense, viewing himself as a, you could say, a Christian prophet who's in line with the prophets who have come before. And he's saying all the stuff that Isaiah promised, all the stuff Zechariah promised, all the stuff Ezekiel promised, all the things we've been waiting for have now come true in Christ. Right? Mm -hmm. So this revelation of Christ is not this completely distinct thing, but it is the culmination and fulfillment of all the things we've been anticipating and waiting for. And so there's where he's using, I think, the Old Testament. Uh, in, in different ways, all the New Testament authors do this, but he's doing it in a very particular way with the prophets because what he's seeing is a is a vision, a prophetic vision. Mm, interesting. Yeah, to think about that, the the integration of the prophets as as one of the primary kind of distinctions of Revel or of John, you know, from the other authors is really interesting. But, you know, um, I wonder if, um, yeah, I think I agree with you that it, basically it's not that he reads these texts as being uh, messianic or referring to some kind of, you know, intermediary figure. It's that he reads all of them to do that. And, yeah. and then in reading all of them in that way creates this like super intermediary who's, yeah. who's more than that, who's of course God. So, yeah, yeah because, Megatron, because I mean, I yeah, a great example is uh, you say Megatron. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you said Metatron, which is in Third Enoch, which is its oh, own yeah. thing. No, um, no, 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 it was far less <laughs> theological reference. <laughs> um, what, you know, one example I bring out that I think is is really instructive, and this is not something new to me. I mean, something that I think a lot of Revelation scholars see is the way that he melds to get when he describes Jesus, he melds together the the Son of Man figure and the Ancient of Days. It describes Jesus in both ways. So when you read Daniel mm -hmm. 7 or 10, you've got this heavenly son of man who is coming to judge or is coming to save or however you want to interpret that. And you also have the ancient of days who's like kind of the one who sent him. And you're pretty clear. Son of, ancient of days, that's Yahweh. Son of man, who knows, right? Some people would say <laughs> that the Jewish, Jewish people already recognized that was a divine figure. Some people would say not. But with right. John, it's very clear. He's, you know, he's saying things like, you know, oh, he's the son of man. But then also he's describing him with a sash and and a voice like the thundering waters. He's using Yahweh, Ancient of Days language for him. And there's an example mm -hmm. where he is taking the prophetic tradition and doing something new with it mm -hmm. by saying, you know, he's kind of melding together the divine and human elements of the Son of Man of Ancient of Days and saying that's who Jesus is. 
Uh, which of course would, would Daniel have known that who knows, but this is, this is what John sees and this is what John reports. Yeah, that's good. Well, so we've heard a lot about the Christology, which I think makes sense. I mean, I know this from, from my own work that a lot of times when you're trying to do some kind of Trinitarian project, it's not about establishing that the father is God. It's about, you know, trying to make arguments about who the son is in relationship to him and things like that. But you do have some theology proper um, that really does focus in on the person of the father. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the kind of distinctive shape of that in Revelation? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I do is uh, with these Trinitarian categories, I am trying to say uh, basic Trinitarian doctrine, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in nature. There is one God. There are not three gods, but they're also distinct in their personhood. And not only distinct in their personhood, but, but you know, the kind of classical Trinitarian way to talk about it is that they have relations of origin, or there's the father who is unbegotten. He has begotten the son and he has spirated the spirit. And just because the son is begotten doesn't mean he's less God than God, now than the mm-hmm. father. In fact, the church fathers, I think rightly would say, if he is a son by nature, then he is actually everything the father is, right? So part of it with the father is okay, I can demonstrate that he's God. That That is pretty simple, right? I think most people default to thinking Yahweh is the father. And I have other other thoughts about that. We could talk about another podcast. But um, the one thing I really wanted to establish was his relationship to the Son and Spirit as a way to show not just that he's God, but that he has a particular, uh, particular operation or a particular uh, way. I don't want to say role. I hate the word role. But a particular way that he is working in salvation that is distinct from the Son and Spirit. And actually, by establishing that, I think you set some ground rules for being able to say, and this is why we know the Son and Spirit are God, which I think is what all the New Testament authors are actually just doing at the end of the day. Uh, they, they know who Yahweh is, and Jesus is doing Yahweh stuff, and they're like, well, we kind of we have few options about what's going on here. So with the Father, uh, one of the things I want to say is that the Father is in Revelation. He's the source of the Revelation. So uh, he gives the Revelation uh, to John of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the one who has sent this lamb to go be slain. Uh, he is the one who sits on the throne. Uh, he's de- described in the kind of opening doxology as the one who was and is and is to come. So he's got his own sort of personhood and even in some sense, his own uh, work that he's doing there. And so one of the things I wanted to show was that um, the father is the source of the revelation. And in many, in many ways, he's the centering figure in the throne room as the one seated on the throne. Um, and so I wanted to show sort of that he's got his own personhood and that he's doing certain things uh, in Revelation. Because I think sometimes, too, we can get into Revelation and Jesus is so clearly the centering figure that we're like, oh, yeah, that yeah, God, the Father, that's great. But like Jesus right. is doing a lot of stuff here. And I wanted to give, uh, give the Father his due, for lack of a better word, to say uh, there is a sense in which he is the, the source of all of this divine activity. He's the source of this Revelation. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean he's greater than the son or spirit, but that is something that he's doing that's really important and sort of sets the stage for the rest of it. Yeah, that's really good. And yeah, I think that that's a really important thing. Like I said, I think so often that the focus is on Christology um, to the detriment of the work of the father. And, you know, I found that quite a bit in working on Hebrews, that the role of the Mm -hmm. father in the son's work um, is often really minimized. And yeah. so I appreciate in your book that you do, you have an entire chapter on the father. In fact, our, our books have very similar structure um, and yeah. yeah, and give him some space there. Um, I guess the other person uh, in the room that we had to talk about, the elephant in the room is the spirit. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some interesting stuff in Revelation, like the sevenfold spirit. This is another question we got on Twitter. Um, but yeah, the pneumatology or supposed lack thereof is a thing in Revelation studies. So can you tell us a little bit about the distinctive contribution of Revelation um, from your perspective? But really, I mean, your distinctive contribution to Revelation studies on this. I hope it's a contribution. You've got the seven spirits, for example, and I think a lot of, particularly modern Revelation studies, um, will either say something like, well, who really knows who or what that is? At best, the sort of strongest claims you get is that the seven spirits are likely angels mm-hmm. um, or chief angels or something like that. And so typically, that's the sort of default uh, position. So a couple of things I want to do, especially with the seven spirits, and I can talk about the other parts in a second too, but the seven spirits, the angel argument is a good argument. Um, I think it's it's the best argument you can make if you're not trying to make the argument I'm making, which I think is <laughs> I think is more satisfying, which is why I make it right. But I think it, it's, a, it's a force to be reckoned with, uh, truly. I mean, um, Collins and some others are making this argument. And they're doing a really good job mm-hmm. with it. And I, I felt like by far that was the hardest chapter to write. Mm. But I think with the seven spirits, if we talk about the doctrine of God and we talk about the whole biblical canon as part of what helps shape our methodology. So again, part of the reason why the father chapter is so important is because if you get, how do I say, uh, if you get the father right, you get the son and spirit right, essentially. Because, uh, and then, you know, if you get the spirit, a uh, son right, you get the spirit right, because there, there is a sense in which you can't really separate them from each other too far in any of the books of the Bible, but I think even in Revelation. So for example, very beginning verses four and five, you get this opening doxology, this sort of offering of uh, grace and peace, which is a divine prerogative throughout all the scripture. And you have the one who was and is and is to come. You have the seven spirits and you have Jesus Christ in that order. Okay, well, Jesus Christ, we know who that is. The one who is and was and is to come, probably the father, right? Pretty, pretty kind of easy to sort of work that out. And then you've got the seven spirits sandwiched in between. So I'm trying to remember which commentary, one of the commentators says, basically, it'd be a lot easier if the seven spirits was at the end, because then you could separate them and be like, oh, yeah, maybe that is angels or something else. But he's kind of <laughs> smack dab in the middle. So it's harder to it's harder to sort of make that kind of exegetical move. Um, mm. But if this doxological sort of blessing formula is a divine formula, which I think it is, then the seven spirits, the the identity of the seven spirits becomes very limited. So if you have angels, the problem with the angel view is that um, if that's a, a type of worship language, um, John tries to worship the angels on numerous occasions, and the angels very quickly correct him and tell him to stop doing it. Uh, they'll say, we are fellow servants with you. Mm-hmm. So that's the first one. Okay. Um, you also have the idea, uh, you also have the seven spirits in other parts of scripture or other parts of revelation that you've got to kind of deal with as well. Uh, so for example, the seven spirits come up again in the throne room scene. And the seven spirits there are the seven uh, eyes of the lamb that go forth and sort of traverse the earth, which is drawing on Zechariah. And in Zechariah and in Isaiah 11, you have the sevenfold spirit who has this sort of divine power, who um, bestows a certain amount of uh, gifts and grace on people. And you've got the seven eyes of the lamb, which are, you know, in, in Zechariah, the, the, the sort of spirit of the Lord is these eyes that go and roam the earth. So there you've got the seven spirits, I think even more obviously functioning as the Holy Spirit, if you draw on Zechariah and you think about Isaiah and some other places. And then so so you've got it there, and then you've got the beginning where it's in this doxological language. So for me, the two main parts of where you see the spirit sort of having a really clear function 
I mean, you see them a little bit in the uh, in the seven churches, but really in those two sections. Uh, your options are very limited, I think, in what you can say about who the seven spirits are or what the seven spirit is. I don't think angel works because they're both in the context of, of worship. So the Holy Spirit, even in the, he's not sitting on the throne in the throne room, but he is proceeding from the throne, which by the way, classically Holy Spirit, what does he do? He proceeds from the father or the father and son. He comes from the throne and he has a divine prerogative. He is one who is the sevenfold spirit who is going and, uh, you know, being the eyes of the Lord on the earth, which is what the spirit is in Zechariah. So uh, he's included in the doxology and he's included as the one who goes away from the throne. So I kind of describe it as if you have a heavenly topography or a heavenly map, you have the, uh, so I kind of play on Bauckham's. I don't do this in the book as well as I should have. I, I feel like this is one of those things I should have just uh, milked for all it was worth. But, you know, Bauckham talks about the creator creature distinction and there's a creator line and there's a creator side. And there's also, I think in that throne room scene, there's a throne side and there's a everybody else. And the spirit is on the throne side of of the map everybody else is creatures angels elders are all facing the throne worshiping and singing you have the father and the lamb there and then you have the spirit leaving the throne and proceeding from the throne so there i think the seven spirits um the angel argument is a good argument i think if you're doing sort of careful exegesis drawing together uh the biblical passages like the prophets that john is drawing on i think you end up with the holy spirit being the best description of what's happening there yeah um secondarily yeah, the in the in the spirit language. So that's the other part of it is he's in the spirit the whole time. And um, you know, there's different arguments about is that just an ecstatic experience? Is that all it is? Is it something more than that? Um, but all of the sort of structure of revelation is built around these visions. And in these visions, John's always in the spirit. So the spirit is the one who uh you could say inspires and illumines all of this for John, which mm -hmm. is who the spirit is in the rest of scripture, right? First Corinthians two, John sixteen, whatever. And uh, so there you have the spirit bringing him into the throne room. You have him showing him the things of God. You have him in some sense, maybe even interpreting some of these things for him. And the spirit is the one who proceeds from the throne. And you see this in Revelation as well, the, the water of life flowing from the throne, which is how Jesus describes the spirit in John, uh, the gospel of John. So at that point, all that to say, at that point, I think those two big moments, if you separate them completely from the rest of scripture, I guess you have more options. Or if you, if you want to privilege other Jewish apocalyptic works as sort of um, here's this buffet that John can draw from, and maybe it's Isaiah and Enoch or whatever. Um, okay. That's one thing. But if you're, if you're, if you're taking the position I am, which is my presupposition that the, the Bible is a canon and that this is God's revelation and that I should read revelation in light of John and Isaiah and whatever else, Matthew, Mark, Romans, whatever. Um, then actually, I think if you have a more canonical reading like that, it actually limits your options in a way that I think is what John is limiting himself to, which is he's drawing on the prophets. He's drawing on um, even New Testament, uh, Christian kerygma, you know, that he that has been passed down to him, whether you think he's the apostle or somebody else. That seems much more likely to me that that's what he's drawing on than extra biblical sources, even though those might be in view. And I think actually, if you privilege the biblical text, that I think he's privileging, it makes that uh, pneumatology a lot clearer. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think you, I mean, to some degree, you're selling yourself short or you're, you're kind of hedging more than I think you should. So I'll speak on your behalf. Um, I think it is true that you have presuppositions that are represented there, but it is the case also that, uh, those allusions to Isaiah 11 to Ezekiel, those, those are there. Mo most would recognize those allusions and whether or not you have some kind of canonical bias. Um, John is clearly drawing on scripture and yeah. he's also 
he's not the only one, uh, that there are other early Jewish authors who are mm-hmm. doing the same thing, um, and making the same kinds of moves with those particular texts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's no, I mean, yeah, I preached last week and the lectionary text was Isaiah 11 because it is understood to have this kind of messianic, you know, foretelling. And, and that's, again, that's not a Christian imposition. That's an early Jewish thing as well. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just all that to say, I think your presuppositions uphold some of your conclusions, but they're not only based on uh, your presuppositions. You biblical studies people always make us theologians hedge, you know, so that's why I'm hedging. Just trying to be careful. <laughs> yes, we're so grouchy. I mean, I think that these are. this is just such a good summary of your understanding of each of the persons, um, but bringing those back together, um, you know, your last chapter, you really do kind of round out and talk about um, how Revelation presents God, Father, Son, Spirit, um, and some of its distinctive contributions. So can you tell us a little bit about what you think is distinctive to Revelation or, or things maybe that Revelation emphasizes um, to a degree that other New Testament texts don't? The apocalyptic literature is maybe the most obvious part. You know, I mean, you've got some apop- apocalyptic literature in other books of the New Testament, but obviously John is, a, is its own thing. I mean, you don't have to have a PhD in theology to know that, right? So, um, but I think what what is really interesting about Revelation is I think the Trinitarian theology there is actually extremely, extremely rich. Um, Ian Paul says in his Tyndale commentary that Revelation is the most Trinitarian book of all the New Testament books, um, which I, I think I mentioned at some point. You may quibble with the with how strong of a claim that is, but I think there's something there in the sense that you know everybody thinks that their work is doing something nobody's done before. But aside from Ian Paul's Tyndale commentary, in which he's trying to be very clearly Trinitarian and Peter Lightheart's two volume uh, TNT Clark, where he's doing it big time. It, it really is an under undervalued part, I think, of Revelation studies and even New Testament scholarship. Because I think, for me, once you see it there, it's it's beautiful, it's rich, it is influenced by other parts of Scripture, it influences the way you read other parts of Scripture. I mean, I think about the way that he's using the Lamb as sort of the main title for Christ, which nobody else does, right? Not, not obviously not to that extent. Obviously, he's called the Lamb in Gospel of John and other places. But this this whole idea that you've got this slaughtered Lamb, uh, and he draws on Zechariah at one point to say, you know, that that he's he's the God who is pierced. You know that that you had this this God who has come and he has put on flesh and dwelt among us and he has died for our sins and he is his blood has bought our atonement and then he's he's standing on the throne where he belongs. You know, and he's 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 with the Father, guiding history to its conclusion to the new creation. That kind of stuff. You, you, if you lose revelation, you lose all that. You lose mm-hmm. all of the, the so the sort of beautiful heavenly scene of what is Christ doing and what is He going to do. You get the hints of it, obviously, everywhere. But in Revelation, you kind of get like, you know, you read the Gospel of John, you read the end of Matthew, uh, you read First Corinthians fifteen, you read, um, you know, other parts of Scripture where you have this sort of promise. First Thessalonians, you have this promise that Christ is going to come back and all this kind of stuff. And then you get to Revelation and it's like, here it all is in in vivid, you know, color. And so I think that's part of it is that it really shows us sort of the the end or the telos of the Trinitarian God's work, that all the things that have been promised are going to happen. So I think if you lose Revelation, you lose that. I think too, just there's just a beauty to the way apocalyptic language works and the way that he's using this imagery and these these uh different ways of describing that, that the other authors aren't doing, you know, I think some people would love it if you read revelation and he just said the Holy spirit, but he doesn't do that. He says the seven spirits or in the spirit or the eyes of the lamb or the, the river of life flowing from the throne. 
Um, that's a really sort of beautiful and rich contribution, I think, to Trinitarian theology and New Testament theology. So I hope to kind of show in that last chapter that a Trinitarian reading of Revelation actually benefits your reading of Scripture and benefits your understanding of God, which I think is ultimately that's what I want my work to do is to help people read the Bible better and worship the triune God properly. Uh, and so I think that's where Revelation actually gives us some some more to work with that I hopefully will help people read their Bibles better. Yeah, absolutely. That grand vision of the kind of, yeah, the cosmological uh, impact of the the work of Christ is really important. Mm. I mean, what what do you kind of hope for from this project and how does it relate to some of the stuff that you've been working on since you finished it? Yeah, it's it's at the like we we're talking about the intersection of all the things I'm interested in. So, um, yeah. you know, I got to, I got to as best as I could really get into New Testament studies and biblical studies more generally. I understand, I think Second Temple Judaism at least reasonably well. Uh, I used to joke that, like I said, I was a triple major. I'd say I was like a minor in Second Temple Judaism. So, uh, you know, it wasn't my strong point necessarily, but I feel like I got it pretty well. I had to learn Ge'ez so I could read First Enoch in its <laughs> extant language, which was yeah. uh, still the bane of my existence. And um, I got to read the fathers, which I wanted to do, and really try to understand them well. And then have a good—I mean, it, it's it's one thing to have a good sort of systematic category of the Trinity. It's another thing to be able to describe the Trinity in Scripture to me. It's much more difficult, I think, to do that. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, I got to do these things I really love. And I think my, you know, I've got a book coming out with Lexum in the spring called The Biblical Trinity, because I'm very creative in the titles that I pitch to publishers. And um, there I'm trying to show, you know, the, the Trinity in 15 biblical passages for sort of pastors and lay people and for churches. It's I think it's 32,000 words. It's very small. And so that that was my sort of, I had dreamed when I wrote my dissertation that I could do something that the church could definitely read. I'm not sure that this book is is going to be passed around churches necessarily. Um, so I kind of had the dream of doing that, got to do that. I'm working on something right now on um, on the early church's interpretation of Scripture and how that helps us understand Scripture better. And I think kind of the next step will be I want to do more proper patristic theology work. So I think after I kind of came out of it, I thought, okay, what am I most interested? What, do, what would I want to spend the next 10 years of my life studying? I think I want to get better at the patristic stuff because I think for me, at least some of what I care about and want to do, understanding the fathers better will help me do Trinitarian theology better, do theological interpretation better, um, help the church recover some of what it's lost, you know, from its, from its great cloud of witnesses, great historical cloud of witnesses, if you will. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, that's where I want to go next. So I think I'll have a couple of things coming out on Trinity and scripture. And then I'm going to, my plan is to kind of lay low for a while and, do some really serious patristic work. So we'll see if I pull it off, but yeah, well, we're all looking forward to it. And I'd say that the Trinity in the book of revelation is actually, it's a very accessible book. I mean, you worked really hard to make it uh, something that's readable and engaging. And so um, if you're out there, don't let Brandon scare you away from his own book. (laughs) Uh, You should buy it and read it. (laughs) Just trying to be honest. (laughs) But I, I think um, just to follow up on what you're just saying, I do think it's important. I mean, um, a lot of us sit at a nexus of a lot of different fields um, and there always is a dominant one. And so, you know, I, there, I have a lot of friends that where their dominant mode would be something like patristics or early Christian studies. Um, and I would say yours probably is theology, um, but, you know, it's it's so fruitful to be able to develop some of those other interests and to 
uh, be able to move in different spheres even more faithfully. Um, Cause obviously you're very familiar with early Christian literature, but this, yeah, that it, um, sustained focus, it means something. And I think that's yeah. true for me too. I'm a new Testament scholar or I'm a Hebrew scholar. Um, but theology has been a big part of my work um, or early Christian literature or whatever. Um, but I have to work really hard to be able to like stay up on those latter yeah. two things. So, anyways. well, I mean, being a generalist serves you in a lot of ways, but I think at least for me, I don't want to be, I don't want to end up just being a generalist at a bunch of things. Like I, there's, I want to really be, you know, as a scholar, I, I have so many interests. There's all, all these other things I'd love to study that I just don't have time to do. At some point I thought, you know, I just need to put my head down and, and try to do one thing really well. And so yeah. for now, that's the thing is trying to do the church fathers well so that I can do everything else better. That's awesome. Well, we have one more fun question from our old friend. Glenn Butner. So I'm going to pull it up. <laughs> Glenn always makes an appearance when you and I are on a podcast together. He does. We love Glenn. He's one of our, our shared friends. So, all right, here it is. If your book could take only three things when shipwrecked on a deserted island, what would they be? And how would you use those three things to explain the Trinity briefly? Well, yeah, we can't explain the Trinity, so that's the first uh, that's the first flaw in Glenn's <laughs> question. Um, I, have, I have a test question uh, for my students where I say, um, should you ever start a sentence with the Trinity is like, and the only answer they can select is no. Not allowed to select any other answer. Um, but Excellent. if my if my book could take three things to Desert Island, I'll interpret that as the three things that my book loves most. And I think my book loves most um, <laughs> Athanasius and the Cappadocians, uh, the prophets, and it's got a really cool cover. So maybe it would bring with it like a, I don't know, what, what would you bring with it if you really liked art? It's got a cool cover. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, the, maybe the painting. A good coffee table book. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. That but, is yeah. a good cover. The Prophets, the Cappadocians and Athanasius, and Kate Irwin's excellent cover design. So there something pretty maybe. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, how how do those three things, how, art in particular, how does that explain the Trinity? I think the other two, I mean, you've kind of helped us with that. But tell yeah. us, Brandon, how does art relate to the Trinity? It doesn't because nothing oh, no. can describe the Trinity. I'm yeah. just kidding. I like, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, the art on this one is is the angel giving the revelation to John. Um, you know, really good ancient Trinitarian art, like baptism icons and stuff like that can give you a beautiful picture of the Father, Son, and Spirit in ways that are appropriate to the way Bible describes it and not weird analogies that are her heretical. So, um, Well, Reformed traditions would have varying uh, degrees of comfort with what you just said. Mm -hmm. There's there's some additional iconoclasm in my new context <laughs> that I'm well, exploring. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, fun, it's funny because I have, the, there was an original version of this cover had a Trinitarian image and it had the father with the white beard. And I was yeah. like, absolutely not. Like to me, hey. that is that is blasphemy and bad Trinitarian theology. It wasn't their fault. It was anyway. But I have no problem with images of Christ. Whereas, yeah, I've gotten, I, I mean, I've had stuff like I posted something at the Center for Baptist Renewal a while back. And the sort of, you know, the the key image or whatever was Christ's transfiguration. And somebody replied, you know, like, really good piece, but I don't know why you have to violate the commandment there and have G yeah. an image of Jesus. And for me, uh, for me, you know, God uh, did icon among us by putting on flesh. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't bother me as much, but I might change my mind on this in five years, but that's where I'm at right now. There you have it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon on art. Well, cool. Well, I'm thanks, Brandon, for coming on my podcast. It's really great to interview <laughs> you. <laughs> Appreciate you, you know, serving my listeners in this way and everything. But 
Well, thanks for forcing me to do this. I appreciate it.